Across the UK, parents are pushing back against the indoctrination of their children. In schools, rather than education, they're seeing a, a strange, an alien, an imported ideology, uh, one which uh, dis disturbs the children. It removes from them a sense of solid solidity, a sense of knowing who they are and where they came from. It uh, replaces this with uh, uncertainty and anxiety, and it has often very destabilising effects. It's seen through the application of highly sexualised education uh, at a, an alarmingly young age, or uh, an education that becomes hypersensitised towards all items of race. And this pre this promotes a, a very politicised learning environment and one where uh, some things which are taught are really hostile to the children's development, particularly if they come from a minority where they may be taught that the entire country and the entire uh, society is so prejudiced against them that they have no chances. Really their failure is, is built in, so what's the point in trying? This is all uh, summarised under the word woke. And uh, we're joined today uh, by an author from America who's had these problems for a few years longer than we have in the UK, where many of the ideas took uh, the most concrete form. Um, the author's uh, called Kenny Zhu, and his book is called School of Woke, uh, which examines all of these issues in... Uh, insightful and, 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 and personal narrative detail. So uh, firstly, Kenny, uh, welcome to UK Column. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I, I'd like to start, just some of our audience won't be familiar with all the terms. There's a lot of acronyms. There's a lot of three-letter groups. Um, I, I would just like, if you could, to start off by explaining um, your, your book starts with it goes beyond this, but it starts with the effects of critical race theory being introduced into schools. So uh, as a starting point, could you explain uh, exactly what critical race theory is? I would love to. Critical race theory is the idea that America's problems of racism have never been solved as long as blacks continue to underachieve compared to whites. Basically, it says that because black Americans are not achieving to the level that whites are, there is racism in our country. And uh, that is the ideology that motivates a lot of progressive-minded people in America to teach that America is a racist country, which is something that I disagree with. I don't think that the disparities between black and white achievement are largely due to racism. I think they're due to culture and they're due to policies and they're due to family. I think it's important. It's past time for us to speak out about that because the more that we indulge in the idea that it is racism that is causing these disparities, the more that we avoid the truth, then the more that these activist pioneers gain power and a foothold in our discourse in a place that they don't deserve to be. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the patterns of history that I found most striking in this has been um, the advancement 
of of uh, the black population in America post eighteen sixty post post the Civil War through genuine racism and and prejudice. Um, they started off with very little. Um, they faced Jim Crow laws. They faced your know, state de definitively imposed state prejudice and bias against them to keep them out of the workplace. Um, plus uh, extensive uh, discrimination. And despite this, generation on generation, um, each generation was a, 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 a huge leap forward on the previous one, however you mention, however you measure it, in terms of education, in terms of income, in terms of property ownership. What we see is, in difficult circumstances, uh, the black American community taking huge strides forward. Uh, when you get to the end of the Second World War, the black family was at least as solid as the white family in America, and the white family was very solid. Uh, you had um, no problems with family breakdown, and you had, um, if you look at uh, the way people such as, uh, such as Duke Ellington talk about the communities they came from, a genuine pride in what they were building. And then post-1967 um, post and the Great Society and the, the, the decision by the American state that, that they're going to fix things for the black community, it, from there on, it seems to have collapsed. It seems to have um, degenerated into uh, crime, fatherlessness, and, um, and, and, and moves backwards, and again, however you mentioned, including, thanks to the, the abortion clinics, including in population terms. And to see such a, a, a really merit-worthy story go into reverse is, is very sad to behold. And then this uh, critical race theory has come along to say, no, 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 it's all the fault of discrimination and it's not your fault and it's not the fault of the policy makers, it's not the fault of the politicians. In fact, what we need is more, more of the things that have accompanied the failure. It's very worrying. Um, in, in your book, you, you outline some of the, uh, the, 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 main, the main works of, um, uh, of theory that, that have created critical race theory. And, and you mentioned a couple that I'd like you to just touch on a little bit, if you could. One is um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendall, I think it is. And the other one is, is White Fragility by uh, Robin DiAngelo. Uh, could, could you let me know what you think of these works, what you think of their, their quality and what they had to say? I would say they represent the extreme angle of what critical race theorists and other progressives would lead people to believe. Uh, in White Fragility, Robin D'Angelo repeatedly apologizes for being white and for lacking the cognitive or empathetic understanding that she could never have with black people and says that her best, her, her rationale for existing is just to remain silent, basically, to just listen to black people and to never contradict them. That's the essence of white fragility. It's the ultimate in white guilt. Um, and this represents the extreme wing of thought that basically says 
um, you can never put any responsibility upon black Americans. It's always the white person's fault. Um, so what I need to clarify here with my new book, School of Woke, is that critical race theory is not, and these teachings, they're not just obscure academic philosophies, but they represent the wisdom of a lot of Americans, Americans who want to avoid responsibility, Americans who want to pit the blame on somebody, some collective entity, Americans who hate Trump, who hate anybody who aligns with Trump. You know, um, I think that those are some of the categories of people that this theory would appeal to. It's not just academic. It's not just legalese. It's not just jargon. It has a certain appeal to people who don't want to take responsibility for their actions. Just on the anti-racist tag, I mean, I was shocked when I found out about what this actually meant. You know, to be racist, um, I found had been redefined, and this was to uh, this was to be prejudiced against someone uh, based on the colour of skin or ethnicity in a way that reduced equity. And to be anti-racist was to be prejudiced against someone based on the colour of the skin in a way that increased equity. In other words, it, make, it made the outcomes more equal. Um, and therefore, anti-racism is racism. And the suggestion sort of inherent in this definition is that there's no third option, where that you don't discriminate against people based on the colours of skin, but actually you consider them depending on the content of the character. That seems to be to have been erased uh, from the public discourse. Uh, am I right in that assessment? I think that over the past few years, critical race theories gained more prominence, not because it had, it's being taught more, but because people are starting to see the effects on children. Um, people are starting to see teachers disobey parents, um, teachers not succumb to the will of parents, administrators ignoring parents, ignoring criticism of these ideologies, basically. And you know, if you're a parent, if you if you put your kid in the public school system, you have every right to criticize the curriculum. You do. And they're going to call you crazy for it. But so what? You know, you have a right, especially when a curriculum is as divisive as critical race theory. Um, now, a lot of people like they will come and say, well, there is no problem. You know, kids aren't being taught critical race theory. But they need to understand the direction of our school system. They need to understand the direction of what our teachers are being instructed in education schools. They are being instructed, and the new research in the book confirms this, based on what education school you go to, they are being instructed to lower standards for Black Americans, to feel a sort of pity for Black Americans, um, and to emotionally affirm children in a way that affirms you know, their worst instincts. So this is all part of the paradigm. I'm not saying that it's all critical race theory, but I'm saying it's part of this social affirmation that schools have fallen too much into that comes at the expense of student learning. And my argument is that if we want to reclaim our schools, if we want to save our schools, we need to return our schools back to the teachings of math and science. And we need to teach kids the responsibility, their individual responsibility to work hard. That's something that's increasing being lost. What's the contrast? The contrast is affirm a kid, say he's, he's good just the way he is and society's fault, or 
say, no, you need to grow into something that you are not. You, ha- you are a person with potential. Grow into something that you are not through hard work. And I support the second option. And the second option, you know, hard work, discipline, um, academic excellence, um, uh, 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 examinations, um, advancement based on merit. Right? The, the, the bizarre thing that I've learned uh, recently looking into these things is that this is now being defined as whiteness and um, as opposed to um, something else, um, which is which is the opposite, a kind of an ill-discipline, uh, a, a, a chaotic atmosphere that's been defined as simply another culture, an equivalent or perhaps a superior culture. Um, now, I, a few years ago, I wouldn't have believed that possible, but I, I, I think I'm correct in that. Am I? Yeah. Um, well, what are you, are you saying that they believe that white supremacy is, is, is a culture? What are you saying? I'm saying they're defining whiteness not simply as skin color, but as all of the things that you were, sim- you were just advocating there, that that, that that becomes a definition of whiteness. It's not, because we're seeing people in, yeah. uh, we're, seeing, we're seeing black Americans being called the black face of white supremacy. It, it, it's, it's, and we're seeing, we're seeing Asian, Asian Americans very often being somehow lumped in with, with the tag of white supremacy. And this is this looks bizarre. I mean, on the surface, it looks simply ridiculous, right? How can this black politician be the black face of white supremacy? It doesn't make any, any sense on one level. But what I think they're getting at is to advocate the um, the values that that a generation or two ago would have been universal values within America and Britain. You know, the the work ethic. Um, the, uh, the the advancement should be by by merit. That these sort of ideas to advance these ideas, they they are now being tarred with this label whiteness, and and they're being it's being suggested that this is somehow uh, systemically unfair to do these to to have a, to have a system that's merit based. Um, well, is, they're is saying racist. Well, right. Well, they're saying. They're saying, and it's not like they don't have a point. Um, they're saying that white people have made these values of "quote unquote" meritocracy and objectivity "quote unquote" as an as a covert effort to oppress black people. That's what that's what they're saying. And the reason why is because when a black, the average black person stacks up to the average white person on cognitive ability. And, uh, you know, SAT scores, grades, uh, even attendance levels, the average black person would fall short from the average white person. And I'm not saying individually because there are many, many smart black Americans, um, but I'm saying as a group, as a whole. And so you look at that and you say, well, either black people need to catch up, you know, for whatever reason, or the metric is wrong. And, and critical race theorists would go up and say they would say the metric is wrong. We're we're too much valuing objectivity. We're too much valuing, um, we're too much valuing um, intellectualism or intelligence. And maybe society is too much structured on intelligence. And that's a whole different debate, right? It's like, well, is society too much structured on intelligence? It could be. I know that if you have a higher IQ, you're more likely to get a high-paying job. 
That's that's definitely true. Um, but I also know that IQ is, you know, um, in part genetic and in part environmental. So there are ways you can improve your IQ through a better environment. So, you know, I can't, I, obviously I can't work on the genetics, but we could work on, you know, improving somebody's environment, improving somebody's family culture, their policies. Um, and so I, I happen to think that, that we need as a nation to talk about the truth about these things rather than just encase it in lies about racism and white supremacy. Yes, and we've seen in in Britain in the uh, white, what used to be called working class, what's now called underclass uh, population, where you have similar levels of uh, family breakdown and uh, dependency on state uh, welfare and this sort of thing. Uh, we are seeing similar levels of failure um, as, as the black population is seen uh, in America, or at least it, it, relative to the rest of the UK, at least we're seeing... So, you know, we're seeing quite dramatic levels of educational failure. So, I, I think a, I think a, a huge amount of this is to do with uh, the environment and uh, and the culture. I'll give you an example of how bad it is in Britain. I have here in front of me the University of the West of Scotland, which is uh, based in Paisley. Uh, a booklet called "Racism Exists on Our Campuses and in Our Society." Call it what it is and reject it in all its forms. We stand united against racism. So that's the heading. Not into short titles. And uh, further down, they give a little chart. And it's a range of what white people are doing. And it goes from white supremacy at one end to white allyship. And it gives you examples. Um, and under white supremacy... The belief that we live in a meritocracy is stated. Um, that's actually listed under um, uh, white indifference. Um, uh, we've got um, a, a passionate defender of Western universalism, uh, academic freedom and the right to offend. So to, to, to be honest, is being characterized as being racist. And this, this obviously affects the white population, it must affect the minority population much more because these, these, are, these lies must um, uh, worsen the, any cultural um, barriers that, that exist. Uh, now, in your book, um, you go through a lot of detail about what happened in Loudoun County. Uh, this is in Virginia. And what happened in the school system there? Could you take us through that story, please? Yeah, I would love to. So um, in Virginia, which is the state of Virginia in, in, in the United States, uh, there is a school system called Loudoun County, um, and they're, they're a public school system. And this story illustrates the way that progressive activism works to infiltrate a school system. They are one of the highest achieving most diverse districts in the nation, lots of immigrant kids, but the local NAACP, which basically claims to speak on behalf of black Americans, which is not, you know, no organization can claim to speak on behalf of black Americans, but they did. They sued the district claiming systemic racism because some PE teacher made an exercise that asked people to go on the underground railroad. Basically it was like a PE exercise, physical education. And 
the school district capitulated because they had a Democratic governor at the time, a progressive governor, and they accepted a compromise with this NAACP where they would pay NAACP $300,000 to conduct a quote-unquote systemic equity audit at Loudoun County Schools. And this, of course, this audit revealed shocking, more staggering racism in Loudoun County um, and just gave the NAACP even more leverage over the school system. And it was just going down and down further. They had to do things like rename their buildings because of this lawsuit, change their admissions policies to be to basically accept more black students, even if they were lower qualified. Um, they had to apologize, make redresses for slavery. They had to put, you know, mandatory black national anthems in their in their, um, you know, sort of Pledge of Allegiance gatherings. And this is, you know, this is the kind of thing that happens when you allow a critical race theory induced organization to wreak havoc upon your school system. If you if you don't resist, if you allow the emotionality to get to you. So this book really serves as a warning. Those of you out there who are in the school system, who are lawmakers, who are school board members, beware of people trying to guilt you into making concessions because they will not stop from there. Uh, and we'll come back to um, Loudoun County later on because there has been uh, real resistance, there has been pushback, and we want to talk about that towards the end of end of the discussion today. Uh, but a couple of other aspects I'd like to just explore with you. You're obviously of, of, of Asian ethnicity, and the, the, the Asian subgroup in America are doing extremely well in terms of educational achievement. They're doing better than the white population. And this actually, this is one of the strange things that kind of says, maybe it's not all about race because that it would mean that the white establishment would need to be prejudiced against white people if it's all about race. Um, now, the, the, the effect of this, of course, has been as the pressures come on elite institutions, to um, admit people in proportion to their um, to the size of their population, any uh, smaller group that is overachieving, such as Asian Americans, starts to become uh, institutionally prejudiced against, and they start to lose places that they have won fair and square by merit. Um, it, 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 is, is this becoming an issue? Yes, it is. And this is something that my book, School of Woke Chronicles, um, one of the issues about this new, um, this new social and emotional indulgence affirmation in schools is that it does not inspire people to succeed and it does not inspire kids to achieve. It inspires kids to become victims. And when you pair that with policies that intentionally discriminate against the most qualified in the maths and sciences, then you just create a culture of victimhood where nobody wants to be the best. Nobody wants to be excellent because nobody's gonna see the rewards of their excellence carry fruit. And one population which this affects in a severely negative way is Asian Americans. Because Asian Americans in this country are basically taught from birth to achieve, to be excellent. Um, they study twice as many hours as the average American. Their parents really push them hard to succeed, to be high achieving. And the school policies discriminate against them. They say, you're too high achieving. We don't want you to be that high achieving. We want you to be normal. 
So they will craft their admissions policies in a way that requires Asians to get higher standards than blacks to get in to the magnet schools or the high achieving gifted and talented programs where they are not learning to their full potential. So this is the product, the byproduct of a culture of victimhood where, where basically teachers are afraid that if they, you know, make a kid look like he is higher achieving than another kid, then it's going to make one kid feel worse. Well, maybe it will, but that kid, every kid needs to be inspired. Maybe it would inspire that kid to go forth and to do better and to learn from these Asian kids who are studying really hard because we want all people to achieve, but in order for everybody to achieve, we need some people to achieve. And just to uh, dig in a little bit more, you mentioned sort of mathematics and STEM subjects there. Um, now, this is this, my personal background is, is in engineering and uh, technical education was perhaps the last area to fall to this. Um, in mathematics, because you're dealing with a, with a theory which is, is essentially one based on thought and which it generates you know, a, a, a right answer. In most cases, you've got a, a unique answer that you're looking to, to demonstrate or prove or find. Um, and it's not um, opinion-based. It's, it's reason and deduction-based. Uh, you have this entire system of thought, an entire language that is apparently immune, or I would have thought would have been relatively immune to these ideas. Uh, but STEM and math subjects, uh, you know, STEM subjects are not proving to be immune. Is it, it, could, could you ex explain a little bit more of what's happening in, in that particular sector? One of the subjects, you're right, right? Math is a subject where, frankly, your feelings don't matter. You know, um, two plus two is always going to equal four. Five plus five is always equal 10, is always going to equal 10. You know, teaching math is basically teaching the art of disciplined reasoning, right? And I think that it is a, it is a, it is a notable and interesting observation that the rise of emotionality teaching coincides also with the lowering of math standards in our country. And you can see that as progressives try to get rid of gifted and talented programs in math, they try to discriminate against math high achievers while also teaching social emotional learning um, in the form of race theory and gender studies. And you are, you're perfect as you are. And if you're a boy, you could be a girl because you feel like it, because we're not allowed to question your opinion. But math is all about questioning your opinions. You have to test your opinion. I have an opinion that this is the answer. You have to test it. More importantly, actually, the correct way of doing math is that you don't even have an opinion in the first place. Everything is process. How do you figure out what seven factorial is? You, I don't know what the answer is, but I do know the process to get there. It's seven times six times five times four times three times two times one. And then I do that process and then I receive the answer. Whereas critical race theory and these other theories, they already have the answer. And the answer is your country is racist against you. And then everything else is just justification for that answer. So math is the antithesis of social emotional teaching. And there is a correlation 
between the amount of social emotional teaching that we're learning and the fact that we're giving up on math education in our country. And, and we've seen, I've got a couple of uh, headlines here, Wall Street Journal opinion, in California, two plus two equals four may be thought to be racist. Uh, Toronto Sun from Canada, radical teachers claim saying two plus two equals four is white supremacy. So you do see, <coughs> strange though it is, this, this um, uh, emotional um, uh, concentration sort of replacing what has traditionally been viewed as mathematics. And it's actually quite interesting how this is done because it's done as a pretense that we have, we have superior knowledge, we have secret knowledge, we have deeper knowledge. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, somewhat infantile to say 2 plus 2 plus 4. If you understand the world as we understand the world, um, you'll understand that there's more to it than that and we'll, we'll give you all the special knowledge you need. It's, it's, it's this sort of Gnostic idea. Uh, you mentioned uh, briefly the sort of social, social and emotional aspect of this. So the, the acronym is SEL, Social and Emotional Learning. And just before we move on to some other things, if you could maybe say a few words about this, because this I find a difficult one to pin down, because what social and emotional learning is seems to be a huge range of things. On the one hand, actually things that seem quite benign and, and seem to be quite sympathetic towards treating the child as a human being, as a whole human being, and not simply as a, as a, as a unit of um, education production. Uh, and on the other hand, it gets into some very strange and, and uh, harmful areas. And the concern, I think, is that it's sold on the first uh, type and it's, it's rolled out, perhaps, into the second area. Uh, what, what are you seeing uh, of, of SEL on the ground? Well, I'm seeing it as kind of, again, exactly what it says it is, social emotional learning, right? So these, these schools, they think that their main job now is to affirm the feelings of children, basically. Or, and, you know, there's not, it's not like there isn't a reason for that. You know, we had a spate of school shootings in the United States. We've had mental health issues with kids. You know, we've had rising spates of anxiety and depression. Schools feel like they need to do something about this. Um, but one of the problems is that schools themselves are preaching incredibly depressing philosophies, like the fact that America is a racist country, like this climate change narrative, that if we don't radically change our behavior, you know, the world is going to burst into flames. Okay, there's no evidence that that's, that's going to happen. Yeah, there is evidence that the earth is warming considerably. Absolutely. But there's no evidence that the, that the world is going to burst into flames. And I remember learning in middle school these philosophies, and I was scared. You know, a lot of people, a lot of kids, they come out of these things, they're scared. They, they come out of these lectures, they're scared that, you know, white people are going to lynch them or that, you know, if they don't recycle, their house is going to burn down. I mean, these are, these are apocalyptic ideology. So you want to de-stress people, you want to decrease their anxiety, stop teaching them false things that, 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 are, that limit their agency. You need to build up their agency as a person. You need to say, you can do things um, in this country. You can succeed, you can live, you can survive. Um, and that's one of the things that I talk about in my book, School of Woke. It's it's like, okay, fine. You know, you want to solve the emotional problems of children? How about, how about not feeding them divisive philosophies that limit their agency and their ability to 
you know, individually express themselves in this world. There's other aspects of the woke agenda I want to go on to, but before I do, um, I, I saw in your, your book you, you also covered um, an earlier initiative uh, from uh, George W. Bush in his presidency, and this was the, the programme No Child Left Behind. Um, now, it, has that had a knock-on effect into, into the, the current problems you're seeing? Uh, what's, what, what has been left over from that uh, state initiative? I'm a little bit more pro No Child Left Behind than people think I am, than people than other people. Um, and I actually write this in my book because No Child Left Behind actually forced a lot of schools, a significant number of schools to buck up because you were at risk of losing federal funding if you did not get your test scores up to the ability where you weren't failing kids anymore, you know? So, I mean, I'm, I'm for any agenda that actually produces results and No Child Left Behind produced some results. Now, there's an argument to be made, well, we shouldn't, you know, teach kids based on the test, blah, 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 et cetera. And actually Obama, President Obama was, while he was campaigning, heavily criticized No Child Left Behind, even though No Child Left Behind was having success. And when Obama came into office, he uh, basically took out the, um, he took out the legs from No Child Left Behind. Uh, he basically said, no, we're not going to penalize you anymore for failing to achieve these standards that No Child Left Behind said conditioned your federal funding. And so after he did that, then schools basically got the federal funding while being able to do whatever they wanted. And that's the problem that we have today. The problem is not necessarily No Child Left Behind, but it is the aftermath of one, passing a law that put the federal government into education, and then two, removing the legs of the law that actually conditioned your federal funding upon improvement and outcomes. And so now what we have is an extremely bloated education system that gets a lot of federal funding with no accountability, which allows them to spend money like crazy to put in woke agendas and do whatever they want with your kids. So th this brings us to probably the area that's had most, most pushback in Scotland. The, the the critical race theory is being embedded, but parents aren't as aware of it. Uh, the one that's really uh, stirred people up has been uh, the um, very uh, depraved and, and deviant sex education programme. And this is this is coming for a lot of criticism. We've we've seen uh, parents demonstrating on the street. We've seen um, a, a wonderful example of somebody standing up in a meeting um, uh, where the education secretary for the Scottish government was present, and quoting from the Scottish government's own sex education uh, curriculum. And, and the woman running the meeting ran to the front of the stage waving her arms and says, you can't say that, you can't say that. We're live streaming. People will hear, meaning that it was highly sexualised and offensive language. You said, but you're teaching this to our children. And the irony seemed to pass them by. Uh, so this all comes from, uh, from, from, from queer theory and uh, all that's come with it. Um, you, you, you speak extensively about this in your book. Could you perhaps run us through what you see as the, as the main things people need to understand about queer theory and, and how it's affecting education? 
So queer theory is basically an extension of um, we need to normalize teaching about child sexuality. That's, that's the queer theory perspective. Basically, we are assuming that a child is too young to learn sexual things when he is not. You know, we are sort of encasing this child in Puritan, puritanical norms as a child, basically, is their argument. Um, and, you know, this has to do with social emotional learning, obviously, because basically, if you're a queer theorist or you're a teacher um, and you want to affirm a child's feelings, and, you know, children naturally, naturally are rambunctious, and some of them in early life are, want to explore their sexuality. So as a teacher, if you're taught in queer theory, you're saying that's perfectly okay. We're going to encourage that. We're going to encourage you to explore your sexuality. Um, that's basically where it comes from. Now, it can lead to awful kinds of abuse, such as allowing transgender kids into opposite, you know, gender bathrooms where they are raping, you know, underage kids. That's, that's a huge issue. Um, kids, what, one thing you need to do, make sure is that, that you never lower standards in discipline because these kids are, you know, a lot of them are narcissistic um, and a lot of them will draw attention to themselves. So look at me, I'm a guy wearing a dress. You know, you have to lower standards of discipline for me or you have to let me flirt with the classroom or those kinds of things. And teachers don't really know what to do with it or how to handle it. And the key is never to lower your standards in handling it. Um, that's something that I argue in my book, School of Woke. Uh, it is not just an investigation, but it is also a template to begin to fight back against this menace um, and really fight for the strong and enduring educational ideal that we have all across the world, which is to teach people to be well-adjusted, apt, um, high achieving people in our, in our world today that can bring excellence to the world ahead. Well, uh, I know you need to go. So perhaps, uh, you could finish, uh, uh with a, a few thoughts on fighting back. I know some of the fighting back happened in Loudoun County itself, uh, where parents, uh, pushed back against the, the, uh, the woke agenda and the woke advocates who were running the education system. I think it's to make it clear uh, you have a seat at the table. This is a public school. I deserve to be here. And if they tell you you don't, you need to find a candidate who represents you. Put them on the school board as well. And we've seen a, uh, a massive um, increase in school board candidate elections of people who are actually principled, who are committed to math and reading education in our country. Um, and we should be electing those candidates. We need to continue to educate. We need to continue to advocate. And we need to represent. So that is what America is all about. It is a representative democracy. Um, use your effort. Say, I deserve a seat at this table. Kenny, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, it's been lovely to talk to you. Uh, your book, uh, School of Woke, is um, is this out soon? Uh, I've, I, I've, you've, you've sent me an advanced copy, but uh, is it uh, published yet? Is it coming soon? It is out now. It's been out since August 1st. Um, School of Woke, you can buy it anywhere. And it really is the playbook to taking back the fight because of this deep investigation that I've done in the school system. Buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. I hope uh, members of our audience will do just that. 
Uh, and I want to thank you for your time. And uh, un until we speak again, uh, Kenny Zhu, thank you very much. So that was uh, that was Kenny Zhu. He had to go. Uh, he only had a little while to spend with us today. And uh, his his book is is very comprehensive, and it takes you through a whole series of of stories about how uh, how woke ideology came into schools, how it established itself, and how the parents then fought back. I want to give you a couple of examples as we finish today on the fighting back. So one was from Loudoun County, um, and this was someone speaking at the school board. Uh, my name is uh, Xi Van Fleet. All right, it's a short Chinese woman stood up to speak. What she said is, you are now teaching, training our children to be social justice warriors and to loathe our country and our history. Growing up in Mao's China, this all seems very familiar. The communist regime used the same critical theory to divide people. The only difference is that they used class instead of race. During the Cultural Revolution, I witnessed students and teachers turn against each other, change school names to be politically correct. We were taught to denounce our heritage. The Red Guards destroyed everything that was not communist, statues, books, and anything else. We were also encouraged to report on each other, just like the Student Equity Ambassador Program and the Bias Reporting System. This is indeed an American version of the Chinese Cultural Revolution. The critical race theory has its roots in cultural Marxism that should have no place in our school. That's what she said. And if people have caught the Lily Tang Williams interview, uh, also a survivor of Mao's China, uh, you will uh, see uh, similarities in what she had to say. And then, um, in addition, there's one final bit of bit I would like to quote from. Uh, was uh, a man, an elderly man, stood up uh, to speak at the same meeting, and he said, "I'm retired senator." Uh, Dick Black of Ashburn, Virginia. Uh, you retaliated against Tanner Cross by yanking him from teaching for addressing a public hearing of this board. The judge ordered you to reinstate Mr. Cross because of his comments, because his comments were protected free speech. Um, and if, if they weren't free speech, then free speech does not exist at all. It is absurd and immoral for teachers to call boys girls and girls boys. Um, even the kids know this is wrong. He continued, This board has a dark history of su suppressing free speech. We caught you red-handed with an enemy's list to punish opponents of critical race theory. You're teaching children to hate others for their skin colour and you're forcing them to lie about other kids' gender. I am disgusted by your bigotry. And, and I wanted to finish on that because this term bigotry is what is directed against anyone who's standing up for standards for teaching children in a way that will give them an excellent start in life and a basis for creating a happy and productive and useful life for themselves. Uh, to stand up for such ideas you're called a bigot. Then the bigotry is in reality coming from the other side. Right? Black has become white, everything is reversed, we're in opposite world. And um, the 
the gaslighting nature of this is to make you believe that your ideas, which are correct and which are based on the best interests of your children and other people's children, are in fact dirty and unsayable and bigotry and they're nothing of the sort. So it's, I'd like to finish this little uh, segment by just saying, uh, you know, stand up for what you believe is right. Stand up for your children. Do not allow the lies and the words which are meant to close you down and make you feel shame where none should. Uh, don't be afraid. Fear not and speak ever more boldly against evil installing itself in the schools that are teaching our children.